Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Let's uh, take our seats. And then um, we are going to, I'm going to have you take out your Bibles and turn to John 12. And you say, well, I thought we were in First Thessalonians. And uh, if you have a VeggieTales thing, you know what that is. But anyhow, um, this is Easter week. And so uh, Easter, where the sunrise service and the service following services here, we will, be, we will not be in First Thessalonians until the week following. So uh, today, though, because this is Palm Sunday and begins the Passion Week, we are in the Gospel of John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And we'll be looking at verses 12 through 19 in our time together this morning. John 12. I hear Bible pages turning. I love it. The good thing is I can still hear the Bible pages turning. So I'm rejoicing for multiple reasons. <laughs> well, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time to gather into this place as your people. And God, we... As we uh, just begin a Passion Week, Lord, as we, uh, Lord, consider the love that drove you, Lord, to that cross, we see your hand orchestrating each and every step of the way. And God, it wasn't an accident. Jesus wasn't a victim. Jesus was the victor and is the victor. The plan was to go and take what we deserve for our sins on that cross to pay the price, Lord, in our place that we might be forgiven and that we today might have the hope of heaven and, Lord, accomplish the purpose for which you've created us here on planet Earth. And so to that end, Lord, we ask you through your word to strengthen our faith, to deepen our love for you, to convict the hearts of those who have come that don't yet know you. God, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would sense your love in this place among your people, and that your spirit would just move upon their hearts. Lord, move, remove the blinders from their eyes that they may see Jesus, and that seeing him, Lord, that they might come to know you. So God, bless this time of studying your word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of my message is, and I worked all night on the title for this, A Palm Sunday Message. <laughs> it was hard. I prayed over each word. No. All right. John chapter 12, we're going to make and start our study today by making some comparisons. And, uh, you know, comparison is something that we do when it comes to, well, cars. You know, your old car, the, the one that's like, you know, 15 years old, 16 years old. If you compare that to your new car, if you have a new car, it's a lot different, right? I mean, the bottom line is, is the old car, I was talking to a guy before the study, uh, Tim, who leads up the, heads up the car show, I, I said, yeah, but you don't have GPS in that. He says, I got maps, paper maps. I said, those are hazardous when you're unfolding them while you're driving, though. And if you're not supposed to look at your cell phone while you're driving, you certainly aren't supposed to look at a paper map while you're driving. But, I mean, we do look at the advances in cars. And, and man, the old cars, I know they still run. They're good. They're solid. They're pretty. But man, when it comes to the AC units working, I mean, you got the temperature controls for the wife and the temperature controls for the husband, and, and that's sweet right there. You know how much, how many fights that uh, saves you from? Turn it down if you're too hot or having a hot flash. Just turn it down. <laughs> All the way down. Then you can turn it up as soon as it's over, you know, back up. That's sweet. Because I'm not having hot flashes. 
So, so you know, I mean, so, so the air conditioning thing, the individual controls, then you got the cruise control that, like, even now sets the distance from the car in front of you, automatically stops. I don't trust it, but automatically stops, they say. They say, when, when, when the traffic in front of you stops. I mean, and, and, and then, you know, men, come on, never having to ask for directions anymore or say, I'm lost. I mean, if you got the GPS, it plugs into the screen. You got the mic, you got the little thing on the wheel. You push the button and you say, navigate Krispy Kreme, Dunkin' Donuts, or hole-in-one. And, and so I, I just say, navigate hole-in-one donuts. Of course, that's when I'm home. When I, actually, I don't need it up here anymore. But, but if you're out cruising, it's so nice. If you, if, hey, navigate to the nearest gas station. Okay, there it goes. Turn right, turn left, turn right, turn left. The, thing, the only thing that bugs me is she's never wrong. I need to set mine to a man instead of a woman, right? Stir it up a little bit here. Get myself in trouble before I get started. We already prayed. Maybe I need to pray again, right? You guys. But I mean, it's... it's just, I mean, the new cars compared to the old cars, they're pretty sweet. Gas mileage is better, you know, and, and uh, it's, just, it's just a nicer car. And, and, and instead of just two speakers, you have like 17 speakers with a subwoofer that you can turn up that, you know, 20 cars ahead of you can feel. And, and, and hey, benefit, you get a massage while you're driving, man, just crank that... Oh, that feels good. I want that song with a bass, more bass notes in it. But comparisons. What we're going to do today is I'm going to give you, out of John's Gospel, chapter 12 here today, three comparisons. We're going to compare three things to three other things and see why those things are more preferable, why one's more preferable than the other. Here in John chapter 12, I, I find it interesting as we open, and, and I noticed this while I was studying at this time, I, I hadn't really paid that much attention to it previously, but already here, we're in the gospel of John this morning, and, and we're only in chapter 12 of a, a gospel that has 21 chapters. And to realize that half Almost half of the Gospel of John is dedicated to the week that we are beginning today, Passion Week. You see, beginning with Palm Sunday. If you were to look at the book of Matthew, two-fifths of the Gospel of Matthew is dedicated to the final week leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Three-fifths of the Gospel of Mark are dedicated to that final week. And one-third of the Gospel of Luke are devoted to that final week. So let's understand that, man, if, if that much time is spent, those, that many words are spent uh, just uh, giving to us a uh, bird's eye view or a, a detailed view, rather, of uh, the final week of Jesus' life, it's, it's important for us to pay attention to something that is mentioned repeatedly in, in all four Gospels and to the volume and the degree that it is. We need to pay close attention. And so we began Passion Week with an event, again, that's in all four gospel records, and that is the triumphal entry or the Palm Sunday entry. And let's read here in verse 12 of John 12, the next day a great multitude had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And they took branches or uh, uh, branches of palm trees, rather, and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. 
As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You see, what we see in this story is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of the most privileged donkey that was ever birthed. I mean, this donkey had the Son of God riding on his back, the King of kings, the Creator, the Lord of lords, and as he was doing so, this donkey was being used, as we will see, to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. You see, this event, Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry, is marking the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, on the Jewish calendar, it was the 10th day of Nisan, not the car, but the month. On the 10th day, you see, the custom was, as the Jewish families gathered, that they would select a lamb on the 10th day of Nisan to be sacrificed on the 14th day of Nisan in an event called the Passover. So I find it interesting that on the very day that the Lamb of God rides in Jerusalem, into Jerusalem, you see, the Messiah, the one who would uh, be sacrificed for our sin, that he would present himself on this very day that the Jews were electing or selecting a lamb to be sacrificed, you see, during Passover. This 10th day of Nisan in our calendar would be April the 6th, 32 A.D. And so here Jesus comes riding on this donkey. And here we see some comparisons. As we look at the crowd and the scene, we see some comparisons that are important for us to pay attention to and to note. What are they? Well, first of all, if you're taking note, Jesus is more appealing than religion. You see... That was the way it was in that day as the crowds gathered, and so it is in this day. We read again in verse 12, Then the next day a great multitude had come to the feast, and when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, when the multitude of people that were gathered, and, and many of them made the journey to Jerusalem, in fact it was required, as they recognized Jesus, whom they had no doubt heard of. He had been around for uh, several years now. When they knew that he was coming to Jerusalem, we read here that they went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, and then they said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Uh, this crowd of people, again, are gathering for a religious festival, that of Passover. There were three times in a year that the Jews would make the journey to the city of Jerusalem, to these festivals, these celebrations, these commemorations. One was Passover, the other was Pentecost, and the other was Tabernacles. You see, when they celebrated the deliverance of their forefathers from the bondage of e Egypt, you see, they were then 
celebrating the Passover. That was to be a memory, a, a something that would remind them of the power of God to deliver them from the slavery that they had been uh, caught up in. It was the, the focal point, this Passover, one of the high holy days. You see, every year, though, it was the same. They took the same routes to Jerusalem. They went through the same rituals when they made the sacrifices. They prayed the prescribed prayers. And as time passed, it had gotten old for many. And I believe that they were longing for something more than their religious offering. And they found out Jesus was in town and you know what? He attracted people. They spontaneously, upon his arrival, began to cry out. We read that they were shouting, Hosanna, save now. Deliver us now. Give us what these rituals cannot give us. Give us what religion can't give us. You see, Jesus, well, he was a breath of fresh air in a climate of stagnant, stale religiosity. One of my favorite verses is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12 and verse 37. It's a simple verse, but it's a wonderful verse. You see, we read there that the common people heard Jesus gladly. The everyday people, the people like most of us in here, he was speaking to the crowd that had gathered, giving to them illustrations and parables as to what the kingdom of God was like. There was story after story and parable after parable. Eventually leading, of course, because of the crowds gathering and their love to hear him speak. The religious leaders, the religious elite were upset. But the common people, to them, he was appealing. More appealing than their hollow, hallowed religiosity. I love what General Booth, the uh, pioneer of the Salvation Army, used to say. He said this, and I quote. He said, I want my religion. I like my religion like my tea. I want it hot. And I think if you were to ask most people, they would say, if I'm going to have any spirituality at all, I want it hot. I want it real. I want it authentic. I want it vibrant. I don't want just some makeshift ceremonial stuff. I want my religion like my tea. I want it hot. How about you? How about me? Because of that, there was a clash between the old, the laws, the legalities, and the new, what Jesus was offering. And it happened more than once. One of the classic highlights is given to us in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 15. You don't have to turn there. I'll just I tell you the story, and, and many of you who are reading your Bibles will recall it. In Matthew chapter 15, the religious leaders come, and they find Jesus, and they're really upset. Not an uncommon thing, by the way. And this is what they say. Your disciples, Jesus, like a bunch of tattletales, you know, your disciples are transgressing the traditions of the elders because they don't wash their hands ceremonially before they eat bread. Oh, look at you who do. I mean, what, what's going on here? 
These guys are mad because this tradition that they had, they were not engaging in this same legalistic kind of make yourself right and clean by washing your hands. Now, this is not a condemnation, certainly against washing your hands, but it's the whole ceremony that was the issue. And I love the response of Jesus in Matthew 15. He said, why is it, men, that you transgress the commandment of God by your traditions? And then he said, ratcheted up just a few more, you know, ex exhortations. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You see, there was a clash between Jesus as a person and a religion that the people were practicing. Again, we see it repeatedly. And I believe that that's why the tax collectors and the, the prostitutes and, and the murderers, those who recognized they were sinners and didn't have it together, those who were broken and ashamed of their sin and their failures, recognizing they were caught up in it. You see, they gravitated towards Jesus. Why? Because he wasn't walking around going, yeah, yeah, you're not doing this, you're not doing that, you're not doing this, you need to quit doing this and start doing that. I mean, he loved them. That doesn't mean he didn't correct them, because he did. But he loved them. He reached out to them. He, he reached out to the lowest people in society at that time. You see, he cared about them. In fact, Jesus had his most scathing words to those who were self-righteous. The common people heard him gladly. But the Pharisees, the self-righteous, the arrogant, the ones who were unteachable and thought they had it together and put everybody else down, well, they, they were the ones that Jesus goes, you guys are messed up. Common people heard him gladly. So when they find out he's at Passover, they say, let's go find him, and they surrounded him. Again, the big difference between Jesus and the Pharisees was that of being a regular person who loved them and would walk with them and talk with them. What are the differences between the Pharisees and Jesus? Let me give you a few. Religion emphasizes the outward. Jesus emphasized what? The inside, the heart. He was always emphasizing that. When the Pharisees would be plotting evil in their hearts and they're standing right in front of him and ask him questions to try and trap him and trip him up, and Jesus, before they said a word, says, Hey, Pharisees, why are you thinking evil in your heart? Not a good thing to stand in front of Jesus and think he doesn't know what you're thinking. Because he does. He says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaks. What was his focus? It was on the heart. It was on the inward more concerned with what's going on on the inside of a person and the attitudes rather than being so overly concerned about the outside. Religion, number two, is often what you can't do. And Jesus, he's about what you can do. Religion is about prohibition. And, and I spent... Uh, some of my life in that kind of a situation. It's all about religion, thou shalt not. You, 
don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. I mean, that's what I thought. Well, I'm not doing all those things, but I still feel like I'm messed up and I still, I still met, you know, uh, do wrong things, and I still feel guilty about those wrong things, and so, so I know what I'm not supposed to do, and I'm not doing it, so what should I do? You see, Jesus is about what you should do. In fact, Jesus is about what he can do in and through you. That's way different than religion. Listen, man, I know people who their whole spiritual experience is all about talking about themselves and what they've done and how good they are and how godly they are and how many people they led to Christ and they notch their Bibles and they keep the numbers and go, well, I led this many people to Christ. They know exactly how many funerals they've done. You know, I've done all this for the Lord. And they have this kind of attitude about them. You see, that's, that's the world. That's, that's not what the Lord wants. I mean, can you imagine spending heaven with a bunch of people bragging about all they did while they were on earth? And so you're sharing, you're in heaven bragging, say, I did this, I did that, I did this, and the Lord, we can always phrase, well, the Lord led me to do this and that and this, but it's still about you. Um, and, and so you're, you're all into that kind of a thing. And can you imagine spending eternity like that, and then somebody across the way goes, oh, well, you think that's good? Listen to what I did. I mean, heaven would turn into hell real quickly. It's going to be all about Jesus then because it's all about Jesus now. There's a fundamentalist poem that I'm sure many of you have heard if you've been around for a while of that kind of bragging when it says, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't run with girls that do. You see, if you're just talking about what you don't do, but there's nothing in your life that shows what you're doing. You're caught up in religion. Thirdly, religion puts up barriers, and Jesus pulls them down. If you and I were, unless you're a Jew here today, if you and I were to walk into Jerusalem and, and uh, 2,000 years ago, and we uh, wanted to go into the temple to worship, we were not allowed to go anywhere we wanted to as Gentiles. There was a place called the courts of the Gentiles for people like us. We would be confined to the outer courts. In fact, people like uh, you and, and me had spiritual cooties. How many of you know it? I didn't use that word, but how many of you know what cooties are? Do you remember it used to be a game? Is it still a game? Can you still, you can probably get it somewhere online. Huh? But cooties, yeah, you don't, cooties were, you know, bad things. You don't want to be around these kind of people. If you were a, a Jewish woman, you could go further. If you were a Jewish man, you could go even further. If you were a Jewish priest, you could go even further. But, there were stages and walls to limit you and keep you out, you see. I've discovered over the years that that's what religion does. It pushes people out. It keeps people out. It build a wall, you know, so we don't get, you know, the disease. And, oh, if they sin, I can't hang around any sinners because, because I only need to hang around Christians. Well, how are you going to share and, and reach out to people who don't know Jesus if you don't spend some time with them? Jesus did. So ought we. Number four, religion typically says you have to work your way to God where Jesus says, I am the way to God. You can't earn it. You can't do enough good deeds to get God to love you and get you to heaven. You see, God loves you just because he loves you. That's, that's it. He's chosen to love you. Not because of any great person you are. I'm glad he doesn't just look for great people. I'd be in the bottom of the barrel. God just, he loves us. 
saying like, oh, how he loves us. He loves us. And thus, you know what? You can't earn love. Love is a gift. You see, and, and, and the religion of human achievement is, is not the gospel. The gospel is, hey, divine accomplishment. God has done it. Religion says you must do. God says, I have done for you. It is finished, the sacrifice for your sin. And I offer you the free gift of eternal life. It's a gift. It's not something you can earn. It's not something that you, you know, that you, you can merit by any things that you perform or do. God loves you just because he loves you. And the gift is offered to you. All that's there for you to do is to open up and receive it. How do you do that? You confess that you're a sinner and don't have it together. You're not a good person. You're a needy person who needs a Savior because you're a sinner. And then you be willing to repent, to turn away from that sin and ask Christ to come in and, and sit on the throne of your life and lead you and guide you and work in you, you see. And then that comes out. The works, you see, come out as a result of what he's doing on the inside, not just cleaning your act up on the outside. That's a, that's a trap and a trip. You see, you receive that gift. So Jesus is more appealing than religion because it's about a person. Secondly, Scripture is more important and re, more reliable rather than opinion. Back in verse 14, it says, Then Jesus, when he found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. We read here that his disciples, as they heard this and saw what was happening, didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done all these things to him. You know, if you went to the office tomorrow or your workplace, wherever that is, or your neighborhood, or you ran into somebody at the grocery store, and you said, hey, what's your opinion of Jesus? You would get all kinds of opinions. It's just, I mean, people have their opinions. And their opinions today are very similar to what their opinions were in the day in which John was living. Jesus asked his own disciples this question one time in Caesarea Philippi. He said to them, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And immediately they spouted off all of the opinions. Well, some say... Doesn't say the Bible says. Some say there's people, that's opinions, that you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Others say you're Elijah. Still others say you're Jeremiah. And then some go, I don't know which prophet he is, but he's one of the prophets. Those are all opinions as to who Jesus is. John the Apostle in this book shares a few more opinions that people held. John chapter 9, for example. Some were saying that, oh, this Jesus is certainly not from God because he doesn't keep Sabbath. Others held this opinion, he's, he's a prophet, but, but others still said in John 10, he has a demon and is crazy. Now, let me ask you, of all those opinions, were any of them accurate? Not really. I mean, the closest uh, by way of accuracy was, well, he's a prophet. Well, uh, yes, but he's much more than a prophet. He wasn't just any old prophet. He's much more. 
So there were many opinions, but notice what John does here. He twice quotes from the Old Testament. Psalm 118 is a quote where we read there, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, the Bible's more reliable than people's opinions. There, right before them, is a prophecy that was written hundreds of years earlier that the psalmist wrote, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those were the very words to every detail that were being spoken of Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem. Fulfillment of prophecy. The Bible's accuracy, and not only to prophesy, to foretell, but to foretell in detail. The second thing that John draws to our attention is Zechariah 9.9, which he quotes word for word. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You see, it matters not what people's opinions are. What matters is what's the Bible say about Jesus? What's the Scripture teach about Jesus? That's far more reliable than what people think about Jesus. God's revelation is more reliable than any man's estimation. Question. When Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, why did he ride on a donkey of all animals? The reason? Zechariah 9, 9. It said that the king would be coming on a donkey. An unbroken donkey. You see, when you read this, verse 15, Behold, your king comes sitting on a donkey. What Zechariah is prophesying is when Messiah comes, that every Jew was looking for and hoping for, he's going to be sitting on a donkey. You have a king coming to you, and he's coming to you not on a war horse. He's going to do that when he comes again. But the first time, and the Jews who studied the Scriptures, they missed it. He's coming on a donkey, presenting himself, of course, as the king that Zechariah prophesied about. And he doesn't come on a horse because that would be a symbol of war back in that day. Among the kings, when a, when a, a king came on a donkey, when he rode into town on a donkey, that, that symbolized that he was coming in peace to make peace. That's what Jesus was doing. He is going to come on a horse, Revelation chapter 19, if you want to read it for your homework. He is going to come and and make war. But here he's coming as the prince of peace, offering terms of peace. So the donkey represents the reliability of Scripture as it was written 500 years prior to it happening. Okay, that's John's rendition of the event. I want you to turn with me. Go back one book to the Gospel of Luke in your Bibles. I don't often have you do this, but I think it's important for our time together today. Luke chapter 19. We'll begin in verse 41. Luke records what Jesus said to the crowd here during this event. It's important that you get this point here. Luke 19, let's read. Now as Jesus drew near, he saw the city of Jerusalem, and he wept over it. Jesus is almost to Jerusalem. He sees it from a distance. He starts crying and weeping out loud. 
And then he, through the tears, says this in verse 42. If you had known even you, especially, now watch this, in this your day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone turn, uh, upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is weeping over the city. He's seeing this city from the Mount of Olives. He predicts because of their rejection of Messiah and God's offer, he predicts their fall and their destruction. Much like what I believe is going on in our nation presently, as we reject God, you can predict as we look at societies and cultures that did, you can predict exactly the course of destruction, and we are on cue. Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah, when the God destroyed the, by the floods, uh, Rome fell from the inside. We're going down the same course. Why? Because that's what sin does. Okay? We're drawn to this and go that way because by nature we have a propensity and without Christ, and without salvation, we can't free ourselves up, you see. And just as Jesus said, this happened in A.D. 70. The Romans surrounded, just as prophesied, and leveled Jerusalem to the ground. The reason that they were leveled, because as, as I've already said, is because they did not know the time of their visitation. In other words, the Messiah came that they were to be looking for, that they were to be longing for, and they didn't, they didn't respond to him. They didn't notice him. You see, when Jesus is referring, what Jesus is referring to rather here is a prediction made by their own prophet, a Jewish prophet by the name of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. There in Daniel 9, and you can write these down, verse 26 and 27, Daniel gives two verses, and in those verses, an exact, precise timetable for Messiah to arrive. Had these men been open to it and paid attention to the passages and not so caught up in the jealousy and the religiosity, they would have known that Jesus was Messiah. You see, because Daniel says this in chapter 9, verse 26, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, until Messiah the Prince will be 483 years. Then he goes on to say there that then Messiah will be cut off. He'll be killed. This shouldn't have surprised the Jews. He's going to be cut off. He'll be killed. But not for himself. He didn't die for himself and his own sins. Guess who he died for? You and me. You see, the clock started ticking from the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. It started ticking. 483 years would transpire and Messiah would be killed. So that means that you would be able to count or should be able to count from whatever time that commandment was given to restore and build Jerusalem. You should be able to count 483 years and come to the event here about Messiah that is being spoken of. Well, several scholars have looked at this, including a brilliant criminal investigation guy by the name of Sir Robert Anderson. 
Now, who's Sir Robert Anderson? Well, he was the head of Scotland Yard's criminal investigation for many years, and he wrote a book on this prophecy in Daniel. Write this down because I, I, it's, it's a good read. It's called The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson, The Coming Prince. You see, he studied this prophecy and he's discovered that the date in history when the commandment was given to the Jews to restore and rebuild Jerusalem after it had fallen was March 14th, 445 B.C. It was on that day that Artaxerxes, the Persian monarch, told the Jews to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And Nehemiah and Ezra and his buddies did that. And then he decided, Mr. Anderson did, that I'm going to count from March 14th, 445, 483 years, and find out what that date is. Not only that, but he did it in precise numbers in the book that you, you can look at. And he took the Julian calendar, our calendar, which is 365 days, and set that aside because it was the Jews that this was given to. So they used the Jewish calendar or the old Babylonian calendar. That's a 360-day year. It's a lunar year, not a solar year. So he took the years of 360 days, 483 of those years, according to the prophecy, equals 173,880 days. You follow me so far? No? You're going, you lost me a long time ago. Well, be encouraged. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll know we're not in bad company. So he began this, this count, and it happened after he counted that one 173,880 days. The day that Jesus came in was April 6, 32 AD, the 10th of the Jewish calendar month of Nisan, the day when the lamb was to be picked out by the Jews for the sacrifice, 483 years from that day, 178,888 Days and Jesus rode in just like Daniel said. You see, that to me is amazing. And and uh, I mean, you, you look at this and and this this day when Jesus rides in. You remember every time Jesus did a miracle previously, they would want to run out. You know, when the blind man was healed, they'd run, r want to run out and tell everybody. And Jesus would always say, shh, don't tell anybody. Go to the priest, make the sacrifice. Don't tell anybody. Don't want anybody to know. When he turned the water into wine, shh, don't go out and tell anybody. You don't want anybody to know. He told his mother, and a repeated phrase of Jesus is, my hour has not yet come, right? But now, things have changed. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. The palm leaves are, are, are being put in front of him. People putting their clothing, you know, their outer garments on the ground for him to ride over and, and acknowledging him as the king and worshiping him, bumming the Pharisees out big time. They said, tell them to shut up. He says, if they shut up, the rocks will cry out. In other words, I ain't telling them to shut up. Because if they did, I mean, you, you ought to be praising me too, but no. You guys are caught up in all your religious stuff. You see, he presents himself just as predicted in the Scriptures hundreds of years earlier. Now, when this was all going on, just like you, when I'm rattling off all those numbers, you go, Pastor, I don't get it, man. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't get it. Don't you love verse 16 in moments like that where it says, his disciples did not understand these things at first? Amen. Amen. I, I don't understand. But it gives us hope and it gives us encouragement. 
In fact, I, I felt a sigh of relief when I started putting this together because I, I read the Bible a lot. And, and, and listen, I, I, I'm the pastor, yeah, but I don't always get it. Okay, first try. I read it and I go, I don't know why he said that. I don't know why. So where'd this come from and what happened here? And you ever find yourself there? And you just don't get it. You, you spent your devotions in the morning and, and you're spending the time and nothing like popped out at you and you go, oh, I, don't, I don't even understand what I just read. I, I read it and, and I read it twice, but I, I still don't understand it. Hey, you're in good company. Hang in there. If anything, this is an encouragement. Don't give up because you, you remain and, and pray and keep reading and keep seeking and keep knocking and keep asking and you'll get it eventually. And the reason I know that is because these disciples did. And they discover just how reliable Scripture is, especially when you compare it with other people's opinions. But if you want a source of confidence in your life, if you want real security, it comes when your life is governed by the Word of God. So let's real quickly here. Jesus is more appealing than religion. Scripture is more reliable than opinion. And following Jesus is more important than observing. Four groups of people, briefly, that John mentions here who are there in that day. The first group was the disciples. They were his followers. They were learning. They were, they were paying attention to him. They were being discipled. The second group were eyewitnesses. Verse 17 speaks to them. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. That means they observed and they saw firsthand the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, they're a pretty credible, reliable group of people, and no wonder they're singing because it's, it's Messiah. He's resurrected somebody from the dead. Pretty impressive. If I went over and said, hey, after study, we're all going over to Desert View over here, and I'm going to resurrect somebody from the dead. <laughs> First of all, hopefully none of you would go, uh, okay, pastor, bye. We're going to go get something to eat and pray for you. <laughs> but, but if I could, and if I did, and you saw it, um, you'd be a pretty credible witness, right? Hey, guess what? You say this guy's nothing, but I just went over with him and I saw with my own eyes when he said, rise, my brother or sister rose from the dead and went walking around and she's over at my house. Wow. I mean, that group of people were there singing his praise and shouting. The third group are those who heard from the eyewitnesses who were there when Jesus was raised, when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Of course, you wouldn't shut up about it if that actually happened. You would go tell your friends, your family. You'd call people maybe that you haven't called in years and say, guess what I saw today? We went over to the cemetery and a pastor prayed and a guy rose from the dead. And they would go, what? No, yeah. And then you could fill them in on the details you see, those people were there as well. And the fourth group mentioned here are the religious people. And these guys always have an attitude. Everybody else is singing, shouting out, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Come now. But the Pharisees, we read, therefore they said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look. And they're frustrated. The whole world has gone after him. Four different groups of people being part and observing the same event. Out of those four groups, only one was really following Jesus, and that was the disciples. And they didn't quite get what was happening on that day, but they do get it later on. Listen, it's good saints to observe. I commend the observer. I commend you here as the hearers. But if you just hear and you just observe, you've got to lead you to conclusions. 
And it must lead you to action. Are you walking with Jesus today? Are you living your life for Jesus today? Are you committed and, and serving Jesus today? Are you just here to observe and listen? I like the songs. I like the Christians. They're kind of fun. They're weird, but they're fun. <laughs> and I, I like it, you know, just to be hanging out and they laugh. And then, and then, you know, they lift their hands up, which is another weird thing. I don't know if their antennas, ooh, trying to get some frequency or something. But you see... You, if you're in that category and not a Christian, not a Christian in the sense that there's any action that has changed in your life or any practices, any progress made towards being more godly, if you just come to make yourself feel good or just to hang out with people, pay the price, sitting listening to me so you can go out to lunch with them. I listened to that guy for an hour. That ought to be worth, you know, going to lunch. They ought to buy my lunch, in fact, for that. You see, if it doesn't lead to a changed life and action, then what good is it? There's a crowd, but is there commitment? Is there commitment to Christ? Is a commitment to love and live for him and stand for him and serve him. Following Jesus is more important than just observing. And I pray today, if you're in that group that's observing and not serving, that by his spirit, God will draw you into a, 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 just a greater life, a more purposeful life, a more powerful testimony and witness. Paul said, I press towards a mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Christian, God's got a great plan and purpose for your life ahead of you. Stay at it. Seek Him first. Because what He's got for you is way better than what the world has got for you. Amen. Amen. And then if you don't know Christ, you know what? Today's the day. You visited here, maybe. Maybe you've never been before, so you're visiting. Guess what? In your visiting, you've been visited. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, you've heard the gospel, that there's a God who created you with plan and purpose who put you here, who brought you here today out of his love for you because he wants to have a relationship with you, not a religion. It's about people. It's about Jesus, you see. And he loves you and loved you enough to die on the cross and to take the wrath of a holy God upon a sinless son. You see, he took it upon himself that you as a sinner might get the righteousness of God and be put right through a relationship with a living Savior. You see, that is key. You've been visited. Now the question, just like those different groups before us, what's your decision? Are you going to receive him and respond and take action and give your life to Christ today? How do I do that? First of all, you confess you're a sinner, don't have it together. The next thing you do is to be willing to repent, to turn from your sin, and then to set Christ on the throne of your heart, to seek him, to, to pursue him. You see, to give your life to him and to live your life for him. Well, pastor, I don't know if I can do that. You can't apart from him, but if you're willing to take that step of faith and quit putting your faith in yourself and in other people, quit believing in yourself and other people, but put your faith in Christ alone. You see, he can save and do for you what you cannot and have not been able to do for yourself. But it starts with a step of faith by saying, okay, Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing. I want to come. I'm willing to turn from my sin and to confess I don't have it together. And I'm tired of the life I'm living. Will you take control of my life, Lord? If you want to do that, you see, 
there's going to be an opportunity to, for you to do that right after the service is over in a moment. So let's, let's all stand. Let's, let's stand up, and then I'm going to pray. Lord, we come to you, and are, we are thankful for this uh, time in your word. And Lord, I pray now that we as Christians, Lord, as we have this opportunity this whole week, Lord, to uh, have other opportunities to share our faith, Lord, may we be sensitive to the fact that it is Easter. And a lot of people talk about bunnies and eggs and all those kinds of things. And God, we've got the message that is urgent, the message that is life-changing, the message that is essential, and that, Lord, can uh, bring us in a place to where we can end the battle, Lord, uh, by believing in you. We can be those who are changed on the inside, and we can make our peace with you. May we stop fighting against you and submit increasingly to you, because the battle belongs to you, Lord. Lord, I pray if there's any here that don't know you today, that they would not walk out of these doors the same way they came in, that they would come today and receive Christ and leave here a new man, a new woman with their sins forgiven and the hope of heaven, the peace of God and the power of Christ to change them. God, we can't change ourselves and fix what's wrong with us. That's why you sent your Savior, Jesus. God, just do that work in those lives of any that may be among us that don't know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.